Well, so good to be with you. I'm thankful that uh, Kira and I are once again able to visit with uh, Christ Church Westchester. We pray for you regularly. Uh, we're so thankful for you, thankful for the work that God has entrusted to you, and we're glad to be able to have a part in that uh, this morning as we and, and this evening uh, when we talk about John Bunyan, uh, quite a fascinating character and one uh, from whose life we can learn a lot of things that will help us in our own Christian walks. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, and we want to focus on chapter 2, verses 43 through 47. Uh, Let's think about what's happening at this point. Jesus uh, prepares to ascend to heaven, and he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so they wait. They're waiting in the upper room. Uh, Luke tells us there were about 120 of them, and they prayed, and they sought the Lord. And, uh, and then when the day of Pentecost fully came, the Holy Spirit came in mighty power. And w- one of the great significant realities there was not only did the Spirit come to indwell believers individually, he came to indwell the people of God corporately so that the church is transformed because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the people of God. And out of that time, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it was quite a staggering scene as uh, people come and they hear the Word of God proclaimed. And what Peter does, he connects them with the Old Testament prophetic word and shows them Jesus Christ. And he shows them that what happened just a month and a half before with Jesus being crucified and being resurrected was not some accident. It was the very purpose of God. And even though there was scheming by sinful men to have Jesus put to death, that was the predetermined plan and purpose of God, and God raised him up from the dead. And he declared him to be Lord. And Peter said that God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And so people were smitten with conviction. They, they were convicted to the very depths of their being. They cried out, men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter told them, repent. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he kept exhorting them. That day there were many that the Lord called to himself, uh, about 3,000 new believers. A staggering thing happening on this day. But what was it like being a Christian during that time? We read in verse 41 that those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And what did they do? They continued uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That was the pattern. This apostolic word, they devoted themselves to the gospel and to this, this understanding of the Old Testament through the very lens of Jesus Christ, and they fellowship together. They broke bread together, which I think includes both 
enjoying meals together and enjoying the meal together, the Lord's Supper together, and they engaged literally in the, the, the prayers, plural. And so they, they were praying together. Now, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's holy and inerrant word, and may he write it upon our hearts. Well, Holy Spirit wrought conversions, changed the landscape. Uh, where there had been coldness and indifference, suddenly when the Holy Spirit begins to breathe life into a people, uh, it's like flowers in a desert after a rain. We're stiff, boring, Cold worship services seem to be the pattern. They vanish away for the joyful, glad, reverent, exuberant, gospel-enriched praise and worship of His people, where the community hardly even realizes that a church exists, now sees a people living in boundless love and joy, serving one another, generously helping those in need, and thus riveting the eyes of the community on this countercultural life of the corporate body of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit-produced life is new and different and otherworldly. Now, the Holy Spirit is involved in every true conversion. I mean, that's how you really distinguish. Has someone really been converted? Have they really come to faith in Christ? Because the Holy Spirit has birthed them, and in that birth, He has made them alive again. He has regenerated them, and the Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection to that follower of Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit does that in multiplication among new believers, things start to get lively because the Holy Spirit is coming to corporately indwell the body of Christ, and he affects the life of the church. Uh, when I was a college student many, many years ago, I served in a church in my wife's hometown right on the very tip of Alabama, right on the, the, the coast in the, uh, at the end of Mobile Bay. And uh, the, the church that I was serving in was rather cold and sterile, and lifeless. That may even be an understatement. It was pretty dead. It, it really was. And I, I wrestled with the spiritual deadness all around me, as did an older lady in the church, and she and I became prayer partners, and we would often unburden our hearts before the Lord, crying out to Him and pleading with Him that He would do a great saving work in our midst. And shortly after some of our pleadings before the Lord, i took a few teenagers on a retreat, and to tell you how few they were, they all fit in my Volkswagen. And, and we, we went on this retreat, 
And one of the young men, who was about 15 or 16 at the time, came to faith in Christ. We came back, we baptized him, and although he was a, a very quiet person, that got the church's attention, uh, especially those who were kind of hovering on the periphery of what was going on. His oldest brother and sister-in-law came to faith in Christ. And then not long after that, his sister, who was just a few years older than him, came to faith in Christ. And then another friend in the community that lived down the road from them came to faith in Christ. And then her husband, uh, who had just returned from, from the war in Vietnam uh, two or three years before that, he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I remember these people getting converted, and we would baptize them, and what joy. And then there was another one, and another one, and another one. And before the year ended, several dozen people came to faith in Christ. Well, you can imagine what was starting to happen. The worship changed. The preaching changed. The atmosphere changed. The hunger to study the Word and pray together and hold one another accountable and spread the gospel in the community and serve one another disrupted this cold, sterile, dead environment because the Holy Spirit breathed upon us and this body came to life because of Holy Spirit wrought conversion and life given to the church. That was an unusual time, perhaps. Uh, this was back in the 70s, and it was a time where there were pockets of communities all across the nation where the Lord was doing these unusual works, just as has happened throughout the centuries. But what we see that Luke is doing, yes, he's showing us this mighty, moving power of the Holy Spirit coming in at Pentecost, but he's also showing us this, that Holy Spirit wrought life is normal to the church. It's, it's not just for those times of great awakenings. It is normal to the church. The Spirit-indwelled church will be marked by Spirit-filled life in the body of Christ. Now, should that happen just in times of awakening and, and revivals? Not at all. And that's what Luke is, is helping us to see, this naturally supernatural life of the Spirit-indwelled church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about that under four aspects of body life and what that looks like. First of all, the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is present. If there's one thing we must long to see fully evident in the church, it is this that the Holy Spirit is evidence in the corporate life of the church. For it is the Holy Spirit who is fulfilling this new covenant promise that was given to us in Jeremiah 31, in, uh, in Ezekiel, and other portions from the Word, that God is writing His law on our hearts, that we are knowing the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are knowing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said, as the Holy Spirit came, this is what Joel was prophesying. This is that. He, he gave them Joel's prophecy 700 years before Pentecost that the Holy Spirit had come in unusual power. And now Peter is saying, this is now the norm for the people of God. 
so that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And in this single day, 3,000 came to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And did that, did that happen every day? No. But that happened with that great outpouring. And then there's this ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so here you have 3,000 new believers. What do you do with 3,000 new believers? I mean, they're hungering for the Lord. They need to be taught. They need to be discipled. They're, they're hungry to hear more about Jesus Christ. They're affected with this new love for one another. Instead of the normal animosity and jealousies, they're wanting to serve one another. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowshipping with one another and enjoying meals together and enjoying the Lord's table together. And they're praying formally and informally. I mean, what a sight. How did it happen? Well, you know, Peter and the apostles, they came together. They had this great program, and they said all those, no, that didn't happen. God moved in through the preaching of the Word, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ was proclaimed, the Spirit of God worked, and people's lives were, were transformed. There was this conviction of sin. They were pierced to the heart, Luke says. And that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came to live in those people, both individually and corporately. Look just for a moment, because I, I, I want this stuck in your mind in Ephesians chapter 2, right at the end of that passage. This is so important for us to see. It, it was something I did not understand because of all the focus on individualism uh, when I was a young believer. I just kept thinking about the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. I finally came to understand that. and was like, wow, this is amazing. But the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the body of Christ, that there is something unique. That's why it is important that we gather together because in this gathering, the Holy Spirit is dwelling among the regenerate people of God. So verse 19, so then Paul writes, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's a nice way of saying, or a, a, a very tight way of saying, you're built on the gospel, this apostolic gospel grounded in the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 21 in whom the whole building, so he's picturing the church metaphorically as a building, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Some people talk about, well, is the temple going to be rebuilt? The temple has been rebuilt. It's called the church. We are the church being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what was happening. Here was this temple in Jerusalem, and now the temple was outside that building in these people that were made alive by the Holy Spirit. So what, what do we see happening as the Holy Spirit is present? Just a couple of things I would point to. First, a God-conscious atmosphere. Back in Acts 2.43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. The verb tense is describing this is something that kept going on. It kept happening among them. They, they had this sense of all, this holy fear, this reverence, this God consciousness that 
people around them felt and sensed, even those who were not believers. It, it seems that the everyone that Luke mentions has to do with the people in the city, not just these new believers. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce explained that the grammar implies this sense of awe as a feature of the days that followed. The Lord God had come upon them by the Holy Spirit. And even those that refused to accept so many conversions knew something was going on. They may not have admitted it, but they saw this divine hand of God that had invaded them. You see, the world may not be interested. And oftentimes, most often, it's not. Uh, the world may not be appreciative of the church and what is going on in the church and the church's life in the Spirit. But brothers and sisters, as we live out the gospel, the world cannot help but notice that. And sometimes they react negatively. Uh, we certainly observe that in subsequent chapters in the book of Acts. Boy, you, you really see that in chapters 4 through 7 where there was this, all this intensity going on and some of the apostles are being put in jail and Stephen is stoned and you certainly see that later on in the book of Acts. But other times, like this scene in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit just seems to open eyes that the Lord is at work among them so that people begin to recognize the power of the gospel with conviction of sin, and they believe the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I appreciated your pastor praying boldly for the college in this community praying that God would do such a work as he reminded us as he prayed that is not above the power of our God. Those kinds of things have happened over and over. I remember in my, in my own high school growing up, so many of us had come to faith in Christ that those who were unbelievers felt just kind of odd around them. You know, here, here were all these believers. I can remember people walking on the opposite side of the hallway from me uh, because they were just scared. They were petrified about the gospel. And we weren't doing anything unusual. We are just trying to live like Christians. Second, notice God wrought actions. Now, it's obvious that there were some things that happened at Pentecost that are not repeatable in terms of ongoing events. Jesus had um, prompted the disciples to the significance of Pentecost, that was the weight in Jerusalem till they were endued with power from on high. Jesus told them that they would do things in greater proportion and magnitude to what he had been doing in terms of signs and wonders. It was a confirmation of Joel's prophecy about the coming of the Spirit. So verse 43 says, And many wonders and signs or attesting miracles were taking place through the apostles. So we, we see traces of this massive work of God's Spirit through some of the miraculous signs that lingered in the expansion of the gospel. And these were marking the reality that what Moses had talked about in the law, what David had talked about in the Psalms, what the prophets had talked about, it was happening. The Messiah had come. The kingdom of God had invaded them, and now there were these evidences. And so we see that in Acts chapter 8 with the conversion of many in Samaria. We see it in Acts chapter 10 in Caesarea with Cornelius' household. We see it in Acts chapter 19 with that 
pagan uh, cosmopolitan city of Ephesus with so many people coming to faith in Christ. We see the same kind of thing happening later on with Paul uh, showing signs and wonders as a demonstration of him being an apostle. And you remember both in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul had to defend his apostolic authority. And one of the ways that he did that was that God was using him to authenticate his message in the same way that we saw Jesus authenticating the inbreaking of the kingdom. And so the purpose of these many signs and wonders were not for the apostles to draw attention to themselves. I mean, we never find the apostles setting up shop for special healing ministries. They, they didn't have any of these miracle-a-day events. There was nothing like that going on. But rather, they were doing what Jesus told them they would do. They were continuing his work. They were bearing testimony to him and the inbreaking of his kingdom and demonstrating that this new gospel message was really not new at all. It was the same message that you see in Genesis chapter 3 where God graciously, mercifully saved Adam and Eve. And so here in the, it was this same message that you see in Genesis 12 is God promised Abraham that in your seed, in your descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's this same message now brought to fruition in magnificent power. Now, we may not see the, uh, the concentrated signs and wonders that was happening at that era prior to the advent of the New Testament, but we certainly see the power of God working in remarkable ways. We see the Lord's kindness in healing people. We see lives change. We see those who are addicts delivered. We see people with stubborn sin habits broken. We see families that have been wrecked, restored by the grace of God. We see provisions for needs richly met. We see churches planted in hard places. We see missionary work expanded against opposition. We see Christians living joyously even in the middle of persecution. And maybe the most telling of all is we see weak, helpless, struggling believers just like us continuing to endure in the faith when the world around us succumbs to evil. Signs and wonders? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's evident right around me. Because here is the grace of God at work in a multitude of ways manifesting that Christ has come, His kingdom has come, and He is at work, and He is manifesting Himself in faithfulness and power. And that in itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our midst. The second thing we see is not only the, the presence and the working, this atmosphere of the, the Spirit of God at work, but secondly, a lively unity. Uh, I, I use the word lively because I, I'm, I'm trying to counter something of what unfortunately is seen far too often in churches that are cold and sterile and rigid, almost plastic type in their atmosphere uh, instead of this lively unity. Because I think a lively unity captures something of what is happening in Acts chapter 2. 
Um, you know, let's, let's think about it. People aren't normally unified. Uh, you know, you, you think about different events that have gone on uh, in the last 50 years and, and 100 years in our country. There will be certain little periods where we'll get really unified on something, but it never lasts, does it? Why? Because it's artificial. It is only that work of Christ in our hearts that brings us together with all of our various personalities and backgrounds and, uh, and cultural bents to bring us together into the spirit of oneness. So I notice in verse 44, and all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That renowned late New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce points out that the phrase, we're together, became a quasi-technical term in the New Testament for in-church fellowship. They were in-church fellowship, and they had all things together. In other words, this is expressing something of the inherent unity in the church found because of our common bond in the gospel and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, even though these young believers had come from varied backgrounds and varied cultural influences, and we'll see some problems that arose in Acts chapter 6. If you read there and you see the, uh, the uh, Hebraic uh, Christians and you see the Hellenistic Christians, the Greek background Christians, and how there was some, some tension that eventually arose, there was this unity among them. The Spirit of God brought them together. And the barriers that had been separating them collapsed, and there was Christian love that was evident in their midst. Now, notice a couple of things. First, there was lively unity in what they believed, just as there is to be lively unity in what we believe. Uh, these uh, Christians were called believers. Uh, literally, uh, it is, and all the ones believing and continuing to believe had all things in common. So Luke is using this term, here are the ones believing. Here are these believers. Even that phrase, believer, is pointing to something that we hold together. I mean, what does it mean to be a believer? Well, are you just believing anything you want to believe? I mean, some people are like that. But no, we're believing particular doctrinal truths that are focused in the person of Jesus Christ. We're believing that the revelation of Holy Scripture finds its grand crescendo in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. And we believe that so much that we stake our eternity upon that. And so there, there is no thought here, nor should there ever be the thought in the church, well, you know, you just believe whatever you want to believe. Whatever you feel like believing, that's fine. Come on. No. That's not the church. It can never be. These people believed the preaching of the good news that they had heard from Peter. They believed that God had delivered Jesus over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, this eternal purpose of God, so that on the cross, Jesus might die a sin-atoning, substitutionary death on behalf of those he would save and then God would raise him up again since, as Peter said, it was impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power. And so this Jesus that God raised up again 
and seated on David's throne as the eternal king is both Lord and Christ. And they agreed together. That's what they believed in this Jesus that had been revealed. And it wasn't, it wasn't simply some kind of academic knowledge. It was a belief that affected their whole being. I mean, one of the reasons that churches are fraught with disunity is just this point. All the members don't agree upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that is a, a basic issue. That's why your church, like our church, as you go through the membership process, one of the things that we talk about is the gospel. We want you to know this is who we are. This is why we are what we are. This is how we are what we are. It is because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you confess your faith together as we did a moment ago reading that article on sanctification. This is our saying together as the people of God, there are truths that are so important that everything rests on them. And everything that we are and everything that shapes us is found in that revelation of God. And these are the things that we hold together and we confess together. It is what Jude called the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints by the apostles. And so this is why foundational to everything is that we are believers. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in this revelation of God centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're only believers in the New Testament sense if we believe this apostolic gospel like the early church did. So there's a lively unity and it starts in what we believe. But second, there's a lively unity in how we live. Notice that these believers were together. They were in church fellowship, as Bruce calls it. They were in church fellowship, and they had all things in common. In other words, they were sharing life together. They were demonstrating that the church is a people united in caring for one another. Uh, Karen and I were talking with a, a brother in Christ uh, on Friday night, and he was telling us uh, about his daughter, uh, 25-year-old daughter, dying back in the fall. And he said, you know, my wife commented to me that not a day has gone by since that time that someone from the church hasn't reached out to us to check on us and pray for us. Here's, here's this kind of liveliness that's going on in relationships, sharing life together. Notice verse 45. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, some suggest they were no different than the Qumran community near the Dead Sea. Uh, this particular sect of Judaism required that all their members forfeit their possessions to the community so that no one held personal property. Is that what he's talking about? A form of early communistic, uh, uh, an early communistic commune like, like there was at Qumran so that uh, everything belonged to the community and nothing to the individual. Well, that, that's not the case of what was happening here. But rather, it, even the language is describing members of the church selling property and possessions uh, were doing so voluntarily. 
and doing so occasionally. As one writer put it, here is no primitive form of communism, but a generous response to particular problems in their midst. It, even the verb indicates they sold from time to time, not, okay, you become a Christian, now empty everything out and put it in the common pool. Rather, they saw needs, just as you find Barnabas doing at the end of chapter 4, uh, or in the m- middle of, uh, of chapter 4, and Barnabas willingly sold property because th- uh, there were needs that needed to be met. There were others that still owned property in Jerusalem. I mean, where did the church meet? They met in these homes. Everybody didn't sell everything they had. But having property and having possessions were seen as a stewardship before the Lord in the case of the early church. And there were many people that were, during that time, were living in and on the edge of poverty. And so the generosity of these believers demonstrated toward one another were showing how they were affected by the infinite generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the largesse of of the church is seen later on in Acts chapter 6 with the uh, serving of food. And some of it showed up later on in Acts chapter 13 through 18 where you see the Antioch church funding the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas and later Paul and Silas, and they probably picked up with Barnabas and John Mark as well. Here was the church serving and giving with generosity. You see, our our lives are intertwined together as a local church. That's why, as a congregation, you take seriously what it is to covenant together as members within the body of Christ. We're, We're not to think of the church as some kind of religious function that we check off and then we live independently of the body of Christ, but regular, uh, r- rather we're regularly challenged on how we live out our unity in Christ with one another, how we live out this gospel in our personal lives affects the whole community. That means if we're, if we're sloppy in our spiritual disciplines, if we're careless with sinful practices, if we're unguarded in our attitudes and our speech, it damages the lively unity in which the church is to live. We're, we're facing a, a lot of challenges on this unity right now. It can come in a, in a bunch of different directions. It certainly can happen during a pandemic when we can't do the things that we're regularly having to do. We can't even recognize each other. I mean, I've walked up to people and I thought, who is that behind that mask? I don't know who they are. Uh, I mean, we're, we're at a deficit at that point. Uh, there's this over-dependence upon social media that seems to be happening in our day as, as the, the form of contact and a substitute for true community when in reality it's a plastic version of community that you click on and click off by the end of your fingertip instead of having this flesh and blood involvement and interaction with one another. And the challenge happens when we think that just by watching a worship service, whether it's online or even just watching in person, but not engaging with one another, not being involved with one another, is enough to count it as lively unity. You see, unity happens in relationships. It happens as we strengthen one another and we sharpen one another 
And we, as the writer of Hebrews says, we, we stir up one another to love and good deeds. We, we strengthen one another to live like followers of Christ. We help one another in times of need. We serve one another in the spirit of Christ. We're conscious of one another. We unite our voices together in passionate worship of our Lord. We join together in gospel mission across the globe. And that unity is evident when it can be said, and all those continuing to believe were in church fellowship and had all things in common. Third, there's single-mindedness. This, there's this evidence of the Holy Spirit. There's this lively unity. And then third, the single-mindedness. And single-mindedness does not mean unthinking uniformity. That's what legalists do. The, the, the legalists want to bend everybody to have the, the same shape, to have the same ticks and nods, uh, to use the same buzzwords, and never veer from groupthink. That's not what we're talking about in single-mindedness. Single-mindedness is about diverse people who bring all of their cultural and, and personality kind of differences together united in Jesus Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, unified around the gospel, holding this gospel with great passion together. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who founded what was called Hernhut, that was uh, where the Moravian Brethren community started, and they became mighty instruments for the sake of the gospel in the 18th century and beyond. He, he expresses single-mindedness in, in a wonderful statement, he said, I have one passion. It is he. It is he alone. That's what we're talking about with single-mindedness. The single-minded congregation has one passion, Jesus Christ. It's loving him. It's serving him. It's enjoying him. It's worshiping him. It's following him in all things. And we see this in the early church uh, in, in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. No, notice how the single-mindedness is worked out in four ways. First, in gathering. The body of Christ loved together, together, day by day, continuing. I love that spirit. Here was this regularity in what they did together. And as we read through the book of Acts, we realize that the church's existence is found in gathering and assembling. As a matter of fact, the word ecclesia, church, translated as church, means the assembly, the gathering. And so what we're doing today, we are literally doing church as we gather together, as we're assembling together with one another. Now, Obviously, there are times that some can't gather with us. Sometimes there are some physical hindrances. Sometimes there are some work hindrances. Sometimes there are people involved in some ministry, and they're away from us. But the normal expression of being the church is in gathering together. And you'll notice they continued gathering with one mind in the temple. Now, the early church didn't have a building where they could get together, and so they met in this massive area on the east side of, uh, of what was called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico. 
And it was a, it was a massive area, 650 feet long, 50 feet wide. It had these huge columns, 43 feet high, uh, that was supporting the structure. And so you had 32,500 square feet. That's a big area. And what do they do? They came together and they worshiped. They listened to the teaching of the Word. They prayed together. They had meals together. They fellowshiped together. And they did gospel work together. And most notably, Luke says, they did this with one mind. Or we might translate it, they did this with a single purpose. I mean, here is deep unity manifested in a solitary mind, corporately gathered together to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, and doing that in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and doing that by loving one another. They persisted in this. They engaged themselves in the single purpose of following Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Does that not challenge us in our day? When we, we think about the church and we, we think about things going on in our day, allowing the world to shape us and shape our thoughts, uh, the, allowing the conglomeration of social media to so influence us that we believe things that are just contrary to Scripture. Are we acting ways toward brothers and sisters, bringing our clubs out to clobber them because they're not nodding their head in the exact way we expect them to nod their heads? That's not single-mindedness. That's called the work of the adversary to get us away from that. I mean, we think of the distraction of endless activities and, and sometimes just the plain self-gazing narcissism that distracts us from living corporately moment by moment to the glory of God as a people that have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, more than ever, we need churches that continue with one mind as they gather. But second, this single-mindedness was evident in table fellowship. It's a good thing, and I particularly am thankful for this. From Genesis to Revelation, you see, you see the table talked about, food talked about. I mean, think about it. You've got uh, the, the, the Lord providing food for Abraham. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Genesis to Revelation. There's, there's table fellowship going on. And many of those times of gathering around the table were places where relationships were renewed, where the Scriptures were discussed, where truths were confirmed, where decisions were made, where covenants were forged, and stomachs were satisfied. Notice this single-mindedness in verse 46. They were breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Why does Luke bring that up? Because that is a normal, natural way for the church to express their devotedness to one another and devotedness to the Lord Jesus. And so from the east side of the temple, they moved about Jerusalem from house to house, and they gathered together, and they enjoyed fellowship together, and they lived life together around the table. These were times of gladness. And so what Luke is describing is that they had lively conversations. They laughed with one another. There was banter going on with them. There was affirmation. There was encouragement. There was probably some times of correction. 
And there was this sense of gratitude in the Lord that they had such an opportunity. No double-mindedness, no pretension, no calculated scheming, but rather they found themselves with whatever table fare God provided, enjoying it with gratitude and sincerity of heart. They, they weren't trying to strike deals or manipulate or curry favor. They were building relationships. Back several years ago, I was, um, had the opportunity to minister in a very large Asian country, and I rode with a, a group of national pastors. And I, I was the only American. The rest of them were all from that particular country. And we, we rode up into a mountain town. And they said, we're going to go eat mushrooms. Now, I love mushrooms, okay? I, I think it's really good food. I don't ever remember, other than this time, having a meal of just mushrooms. And so we, we got there, and we... Uh, I saw this picture on the wall of all kinds of mushrooms. And I, I mean, there's stuff I've never seen in my life. Didn't have any idea what that was. And, and so these pastors were explaining things to me. And, and there was this huge pot sitting on, in the middle of the table. And they, they had a burner below. And so it was boiling. And it was just filled up with all kinds of mushrooms, most of which I'd never seen the likes of. And parts of chicken that I had never eaten before or even thought about eating before. And they were all in the pot and boiling together. And I, I look back on that time with great joy because there were bonds of fellowship that were welded together with these brothers in Christ. Uh, they had fun watching me trying to manage chopsticks, not very well at all. And they kept teaching me very patiently and and. I quizzed them on mushrooms, and they let me know, oh, these mushrooms will kill you uh, unless you boil them for at least 15 minutes. And after that, they're fine. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, I'm glad my life insurance policy is paid up. And so uh, I went ahead and, and ate the mushrooms. They smiled at me when I was dipping in, and I noticed there was a chicken foot, and I kind of moved around the chicken foot, and they, they smiled at that. But my love for those brothers grew around that table, because we talked about the gospel. We talked about God working in the churches around them. We talked about the grace of God abounding in our lives. We talked about the persecution they were facing and the intensity of it. And so there was gladness and sincerity of heart that came into focus. That's part of our single-mindedness. And third, in this single-mindedness, there is unbridled joy. One of the things that we cannot miss and we must not miss that must characterize Christians is joy in the Lord. Uh, their meals were described as times of gladness. They were happy people because they were spirit-indwelled followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly points out that the world makes the very great mistake of putting happiness as the goal, and therefore it never finds it. Happiness is never meant to be a goal. He said, happiness, joy, is the overflow of life in Christ. It is a sure sign of the grace of God at work in our hearts as the Spirit of God has invaded our lives and affected us and filled us with the hope and promises that are in the gospel and filled us with reminders of forgiveness and filled us with the consciousness of life together in Jesus Christ. It is the fruit 
of the Spirit working into the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's something that we must fight for, joy in the Lord, and it's found in our single-mindedness. And then uh, also in this single-mindedness is worship. Uh, the, these believers came together, and Luke tells us they were praising God, verse 47. They were praising God as they gathered from day to day. And I, I, I think, isn't that a beautiful picture of what it is to feel the beauty and the power of forgiveness? I mean, if you sense and know and understand that forgiveness and you see the declarations in Scripture, you don't bemoan that. You're praising God for that. Is that not the voice soaring that has caught a glimpse of the glory of the crucified and resurrected Lord? Is that not the mind that's filled with hope in the promises of God that are counted as yes and amen in Jesus Christ? You see, the body has gathered together and worship is in view, this lively, spirit-filled, reverent, exuberant, scripture-saturated, theologically robust, heart-bursting worship. Let it never be said of you that worship is just routine. It's never routine. I mean, we, we come together with this single-mindedness being filled with expectation that the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. And that kind of single-mindedness must characterize and distinguish the gathering of local congregations. And so we see the church has this consciousness of an atmosphere of the Spirit of God. There's this lively unity going on. There's single-mindedness. And fourth, they are mission-focused. But within the framework of living life together, gathering to worship, talking about the good news, enjoying meals and conversations together, we, we find in verse 47 having favor with all the people. Now, this is talking about relationships. We would say relationships in the body, yes. But it seems that what Luke is indicating, that even outside of the church, they were having favor with people in the community. In other words, the congregation was staying on mission. They wanted others to know the joy of life in Christ. It, it wasn't as though they saw this as some kind of project that they were doing. It was just natural. I mean, the joy of Christ was bubbling over in their life. Talking about Jesus was the normal thing. We'll see this tonight in the talk that I plan to give on John Bunyan, that one of the things that affected John Bunyan so that he came to understand the gospel was he was eavesdropping on a conversation of some poor Christian ladies who were rejoicing in the Lord and talking about the grace of God. And he heard that and he realized, I'm religious, but I don't have that. And the Spirit of God brought him under conviction. It was just normal. They, these ladies weren't saying, we got to do something for this guy right here that's got his uh, hammer tinkering, banging around on, on repairing our pots and pans. No, they just did what was normal and natural. And in doing that, the church is on mission. We go about living the Christian life, showing lives of integrity and joy in the workplace, at school, being diligent, 
being the best workers anybody could, uh, could imagine, being the most devoted students anyone could imagine, because we're living life to the glory of God. And in the, right in the middle of that, we just talk about the good news of Jesus. And so here, uh, these uh, believers were having favor with all the people, and as they did that, they just talked about the good news. And then notice at the end of verse 47, and notice the conjunction. So here you have the Spirit of God working in the church. You see their unity, lively unity. You see their single-mindedness. They're praising God. They're having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke was telling us the Savior of sinners keeps saving sinners. And the language is kind of interesting. It's conveying the repeated action of the Lord adding to the church. And you, you, you see that he looks back at the Lord just kept on adding, and he looks ahead, those who were day-to-day being saved. And he uses the body of Jesus Christ, among whom the Spirit is living out the Christ life with unity and single-mindedness and with joy so that they were not idle when it came to the Christian mission. They were engaged. I mean, they couldn't help but talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how can you not help but talk about the forgiveness of sins and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ? Think about all the people living in despondency right now, broken, They need to see someone around them that's filled with hope and joy. Not not something we got to work up, but something that's normally working out of us because we gather together as the body of Christ and we worship and we get into the Word and God works His truth deeply within us. And while that's going on with us, the Lord also is engaged. The same people couldn't help talking about the Lord. The same Lord couldn't help but save people. He still does that. And so let's be busy living life in the Spirit and talking about Jesus. And the Lord will be busy in continuing to save and add to His church. And notice there's a vital truth that we must not miss here. And I I appreciate it so much, our reading uh, together and what Pastor Raymond was praying, because it's very demonstrative of what we see happening here. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. John Stott captures this well. He did not add them to the church without saving them. So there's no nominal Christians at the beginning. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. So there's no solitary Christians either. Salvation and church membership belong together. They still do. Now, some people object to church membership. They treat it with disdain. And yet, if Jesus adds to their number, he's adding them to something, to something substantial, something lasting, something lively, something God-honoring, something that will cherish and train and love these new believers. He adds them to the church. He adds them to his body. He saves them, and then he adds them, which means if you've come to faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, your journey only gets going Christ's way when you're added to the local church where you get to invest in others and others invest in you. See, the Holy Spirit affects the life of the church. Pray that the Spirit of God might be unhindered in this congregation. The world, the flesh, and the devil will battle against that. You pray otherwise. Pray that Christ's glory will be displayed through you. Pray for the filling of the Spirit so that you might have great usefulness in God's kingdom as a church. Pray that you might keep single-mindedness, this lively unity as a people belonging to Jesus Christ. Because that's what the church looks like, not just 2,000 years ago. That's what the church looks like now. And by the grace of God, that's what you are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there were believers that were united together. They had believed the good news of the Lord Jesus. They'd come to experience life in Christ. And you brought them together, and there was this new sense of unity that was welling up within them. They loved each other. Some of them probably didn't even understand why they did until they began to learn because of your life dwelling in them that even as you have loved us, now by your gospel working deeply, planted within us, and your grace working in our lives, we begin to love one another. We pray that in this congregation you would work that love deeply, that you would evidence the life of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, that you will show forth in their midst this lively unity that manifests the very joy and gratitude of sinners that have been saved by the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will protect this body and that you will use this body in mission in this community and beyond, that your name might be magnified and exalted in their midst. And we pray, we pray for any who have come in today that are unbelieving that even, Lord Jesus, as you added to the church day by day those who were being saved, that even today you would add to this body some new believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have now sensed their sinfulness and their separation from you, but since even greater the death of Christ for them and the resurrection of Christ for them. Do grant that, O oh Lord. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus.